Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Are you listening? Are you listening? We've just heard from the Blood and Chrome podcast. Squadrons of our vipers have been destroyed destroyed taken by surprise our surveillance systems jammed and here on caprica they are uh, they're killing the children uh women children uh two two little boys uh separated from their parents shot down for no other reason than they were human I tell you this because for every death we endure, for every tear we shed, for every son or daughter lost to this bloody war, the Cylons will be held accountable. The day will come when we will kill every one of those murderous machines. Listen. Listen to the Blood and Chrome podcast. They are our only hope. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 179. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. (laughs) 
Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. It is a gorgeous morning outside. Spring has come to Whitburn Village, little village by the sea where I live. It's gorgeous, the sun is out and by God it even makes me smile. Tell you what's coming up in today's show, we have the fantastic Amy H. Sturgis with her looking back at genre history. Then we have an interview with John Joseph Adams. John has, or is, starting something really exciting and brand new. Do look out for that. Main fiction comes from Genevieve Valentine. Then we have one of Starship Sova's interrogations. This week it is Harry Turtledove. Then to round things off, we have a little How to Run a Con Part 3 by Michael Swanick. So it's a bit of a special day for John Joseph Adams, or this week is. John is starting his new editorial role as editor over there at Fantasy Magazine. John, as you know, has been on the show a couple of times, and we've even had him over there on the sofa notes as well. John is editor at Lightspeed Magazine, and now he's taking on the role as editor for Fantasy Magazine as well. So we're going to play their, their opening story, The Sandal Bride by Genevieve Valentine and it's it's actually on the fantasy website as well we've got a little we've got really just you know to kick this one off for John because I don't know if anyone's noticed but if you go to the Nebula Awards the nominees the best short story category there's two in there from Lightspeed magazine so whatever John's doing he's doing it right and he's going to bring those talents over to fantasy magazine and we're just on today's show we're just going to really highlight fantasy magazine hopefully he'll go over there and have a look like see I've got an interview with John we're playing the story that's kicking off there, you know, kicking off this fantasy magazine. And I'm just actually looking at the website as well there now, and it's, you know, it's, it's fantastic. So please, pop over there and check out Fantasy Magazine. But first we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis, looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It is time for another look back into genre history. I hope this finds you well. I myself am a very excited little historian because I'm looking forward to seeing the 2011 stage play Frankenstein, written by Nick Deere and directed by Danny Boyle and starring Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller, alternating the roles of the creature and Victor Frankenstein. This is going to be at the National Theatre in London. In fact, it's already playing as I record this. Thanks to the wonder of modern technology, viewing the play is not limited to those who are in London. In fact, National Theatre Live is going to broadcast live performances of both plays, the play in which Benedict Cumberbatch is the creature and in which Johnny Lee Miller is the creature, worldwide to various chosen cinemas, And fortunately, I have my tickets, so despite the fact I'm a rather large pond away, I will be able to see the performance live. Now, I'm excited about this for a variety of reasons, not least of which is that I like very much the work of Benedict Cumberbatch. I have ever since his science fiction dystopian miniseries, The Last Enemy. And of course, he also currently portrays Sherlock Holmes in the BBC's brilliant new adaptation, Sherlock which just so happens to be one of my very favorite television series currently, not least because it has, I do believe, the best John Watson and the best D.I. Lestrade ever. But I'm getting sidetracked, aren't I? I'm also excited about the fact that this play really is coming from the perspective of the creature, 
and the dual roles and the constant switch of the roles is meant to reflect how Victor and the creature are in fact mirrors of each other, and I think that's really interesting. As I have discussed several times before in my segments for Starship Sofa, Frankenstein is a text that is crucial in the development of the genre. I subscribe to the idea that uh, many of my colleagues also do that it was Frankenstein in 1818 that really created the turning point that took us from proto-science fiction all the way to science fiction. It is the great first work of modern science fiction. And in fact, I just reread it for the huh, umpteenth time, and it continues to say something new to me every time I go back to the text. So I dearly adore Frankenstein, and I'm looking forward to this adaptation. This is all well and good, Sturgis, you may be saying, but what does this have to do with genre history? Well, it occurred to me that it might be interesting for us to look back for a moment at other stage adaptations of Frankenstein, because really, Frankenstein has been a stage phenomenon almost since the word go. By the time Frankenstein, as a published text, was 35 years old, there were at least 15 separate adaptations performed in different places based on Frankenstein. The first I'd like to discuss is the play by Richard Brinsley Peake, which debuted in 1823. Now remember that Frankenstein was written in 1818, so this is five years later, and it was called Presumption, or The Fate of Frankenstein. There are, in fact, versions of this play posted online, so you can read it for yourself. Mary Shelley had been on the continent for five years and was just coming back to England when the play was getting ready to debut. And her father, the political philosopher and novelist William Godwin, wrote to her and said, and I quote, It is a curious circumstance that a play is just announced to be performed at the English Opera House in the Strand next Monday, entitled Presumption or the Fate of Frankenstein. I know not whether it will succeed. If it does, it will be some sort of feather in the cap of the author of the novel, a recommendation in your future negotiations with booksellers. So yes, Daddy was thinking about how this would translate into money, but Mary Shelley herself was just excited to see this interest in her work. It's rather humbling to remember that at this point, when the play is getting ready to debut, she's only 25 years old. Mary Shelley ended up attending the play and quite enjoying it, and one of the things she liked the most was the fact that the creature was never named. In fact, in the list of characters listed on the playbill, the creature was recognized only by a blank, empty line. And Mary Shelley wrote, This nameless mode of naming the unnameable is rather good. Just as an aside, it's interesting to note that the first actor to portray the creature had just come from playing the vampire in the stage version of John Polidori's The Vampire. And you may recall from your history that John Polidori wrote The Vampire based on the same late-night challenge issued amongst the group of friends at Lord Byron's that ended up spawning also Frankenstein. I want to take a moment and really focus on presumption, because that play invented several of the visual and dramatic tropes that we associate from that point on with Frankenstein. 
For one thing, Peek's play created the character of Fritz, who's sort of a crazy, goofy, bumbling servant, kind of in the same tradition as some of Shakespeare's um, more comedic roles, his secondary characters that appear for comedic effect. I mention this because we see time and again Victor Frankenstein's sidekick, his assistant, his helper, in other adaptations of Frankenstein, probably most notably the one played by Dwight Fry in the 1931 film starring Boris Karloff. Another really important innovation, ugh, this is a really big one, is the fact that Peake's creature, whom he calls a hob-hobgoblin, is completely mute. He never speaks throughout the play. Now, if you've read the book, you know that in many ways, Frankenstein's creature is more articulate, more eloquent, more moving in his speech than is Victor himself. But the idea of keeping the character mute has also come down through other adaptations, even to film, and again, I point out Boris Karloff in the first Frankenstein film. The peak version also ends with the archetypal rabble crowd mob coming from the village with their pitchforks and hunting for the monster, and in the end, Victor and the creature going hand-to-hand combat, and in this case, actually being killed by an avalanche, although that was apparently rather difficult to stage with the 1823 um, stagecraft, and so some commenters and critics suggested that it seemed that they were just being killed by a large snowball. But the fact is, you have the villagers' angry mob coming to kill the creature, and that, of course, is something else that lives on in later adaptations. Peek's play was very successful. How successful, you might ask? Well, it was so successful that Peek turned around and wrote a parody of his own work, which was called Frankenstein or the Danger of Presumption. And this was pretty much outlandish, crazy parody of the original play. I'm looking here at a notice in the Times on September 22nd, 1823, and it describes Frankenstein or the Danger of Presumption being performed right after a song and an act of horsemanship and right before tricks on a flying rope and stilt dances. So you can tell this is more uh, burlesque and less serious drama. In fact, it was the story of Mr. Frankenstitch, who was a tailor, sewing together uh, nine other tailors, creating a being called Hobgoblin. But of course, it's only funny if the audience already understands and knows about and is familiar with the story of Frankenstein. So this tells you how rapidly the public consciousness had really absorbed the Frankenstein story. In 1823 alone... There was no less than five separate adaptations of Frankenstein performed on the stage. In 1851, the novel had been adapted into plays all over the UK, the continent, and in the United States, in at least 15 separate different adaptations. Some, like Nick Deere's current adaptation, hung very closely to the original text, and some didn't feel quite so constrained. 
I should mention the 1887 musical burlesque version Frankenstein or the Vampire's Victim, sometimes also called Frankenstein or the Model Man, which ran at the Gaiety Theatre in London. It starred Nellie Farron, the actress, as Dr. Frankenstein, and Fred Leslie as the monster. And it was apparently quite the feminist parody of Frankenstein. I should note that some of the other characters, looking here at the cast list, probably don't ring many bells for you if you are a fan of the original novel. For example, there are the characters Tartina, the Vampire Visconti, Tamburina, Goddess of the Sun, Vanilla, the Dancer, and Demonico. Yes, these are not original characters from Mary Shelley's work. But I think this speaks to the playfulness of the adaptation and the fact that creators really did feel free to interpret the novel in a variety of different ways. In the time I have left, I'd like to mention a few other of the most noteworthy stage adaptations of Frankenstein. Victor Giolanella's 1981 adaptation for Broadway is perhaps best known as being the most expensive flop ever produced to that date. It's also worth a mention that in that production, the uh, horror great John Carradine portrayed the blind man Delancey. In the late 80s, also in the United States, Minneapolis's Guthrie Theater commissioned a stage version of Frankenstein from Barbara Field, the playwright. And she wrote a really interesting play called Playing with Fire that has an aging Frankenstein and his aging creature observing key scenes from their past together, uh, portrayed by other characters whom they call Victor and Adam, Adam being, of course, the creature. At one point near the end of the play, the Frankenstein character says, There is no good and evil, just you and I are left rattling around on this planet all alone. A parody of God chasing a parody of the ideal man. This is more a reaction to Frankenstein than an actual adaptation of the novel, obviously. And the term playing with fire is, of course, a reference to the fact that the original title of the work by Mary Shelley was Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, Prometheus being the character in classical mythology who brought fire to humankind. There have also been a number of musicals adapted for the stage based on Frankenstein. Day of Wrath was a musical adaptation produced in 1990 in Clinton, New Jersey. Back in the UK, Joined at the Heart, a musical based on the love story of Victor Frankenstein and his stepsister Elizabeth, was produced in Cambridge in 2007 and later produced at the Edinburgh Fringe in Scotland. Also among musicals, Frankenstein, a new musical, which is a pop opera adaptation, um, which is actually pretty close to the original novel, ran in 2007 in New York in the U.S., and then in 2009 in Hastings in the U.K., and Young Frankenstein, which is a musical adaptation of Mel Brooks' film Young Frankenstein, ran from 2007 to 2009 on Broadway. So Frankenstein musicals have had their own tradition as well. 
the 2011 Frankenstein that I'm looking forward to so much definitely comes in a long succession of adaptations. I pointed out already that it's unique in that it comes from the creature's point of view and that the lead characters of Victor Frankenstein and the creature are on successive dates alternated between the two lead actors. I should also point out that director Danny Boyle has his own science fiction cred for being the director of films such as 28 Days Later and Sunshine. I'd like to end this retrospective of Frankenstein adaptations for the stage by recommending that if you haven't read Frankenstein recently, run, don't walk to your nearest copy and do so. I'd also like to recommend an excellent secondary source, the 2007 book Frankenstein, A Cultural History by Susan Tyler Hitchcock, which is a great resource for looking at the way that Frankenstein has influenced popular culture from the stage to the film to comics to all sorts of literary adaptations. It's quite a good book. I hope you've enjoyed this look back at Frankenstein on stage, and I hope you'll join me soon for another look back into genre history. There you go, Amy. Thank you so much. So, next up is a little interview I'd carried out with John Joseph Adams, you know, just before he kind of took on this mantle robe, just before kind of everything kicked off with Fantasy Magazine. So we have a man who is so busy in this little industry of ours, John Joseph Adams. John, nice of you to come on board again. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Hey, that's it's lovely. Now, listen, John, just a, a first off, before we actually get into why we've got you on Starship Sofa, big congratulations for the Nebula Awards Short Stories 2 from Lightspeed Magazine. Oh yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, yeah, we were really pleased to see the stories get that attention. You know, I mean, for a for a magazine that just debuted, uh, for us to get you know, uh, you know, not one but two award nominations is certainly a huge huge honor. So, yes. So, I mean, first off, you you must be doing something right there. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I mean, at least uh, at least uh, uh, at least Sifla thinks so. You know, the, <laughs> so, hey, uh, was, well, it is. You know, like. Because you've got, I've got the, the Nebula page up there, and like you say, two, not just one, but two nominations in that. I mean, that's not going to say, you, you know, you might not get there, but that's just a great, you know, a pat on the shoulder to people who's looking at you to think, well, you know, he's 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 picking the right stories there. So honestly, well done. Yeah, thanks a lot. Yeah, and I mean, uh, we had a bunch of years best appearances too. Uh, you know, in the different um, in the different years best anthologies, uh, several of the stories got reprinted. Actually. Um, you know, uh, David Hartwell just announced his picks for his year's best, uh, and he was his was the last one. And so now that um, everything has been tallied up, uh, we had uh, ten out of sixteen stories that were ten out of sixteen original stories we published last year were either picked up for a year's best or were nominated for a, a major award. So uh, great news, and that's that must be you know good for the kind of the backers of you in Lightspeed, you know, who's had to kind of shell out this money, that thinking, well, yes, <laughs> the, the, it is going, it is going right, and we are on the right track, and, you know, hopefully Lightspeed, you know, because last time you came on, you said, we've really basically got a budget for three years, and then that's it, you know, this must be a good kind of example to show them to say, look, we are doing all right. 
Yeah, the publisher seems very happy with what we've done so far, and uh, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, we're we're doing fairly well selling the eBooks and whatnot. So uh, yeah, I mean, all signs point to a successful enterprise, and uh, um, which kind of leads to why I'm on the show today because we're relaunching, uh, you know, fantasy magazine that's going to be uh, pretty much in line with what we're doing at Lightspeed. Exactly. So is this? Could you call this like the sister magazine of Lights Lightspeed, or have they got nothing in common? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I've been I've been referring to it as our sister publication in in uh, in my editorials and uh, in you know in, in any any kind of uh, uh, anytime I write about the two magazines, I I tend to refer to them as sister sister publications. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I think there's probably going to be at least a slightly different demographic. I mean, I think um, you know there you know fantasy is obviously strictly fantasy, whereas Lightspeed strictly science fiction. But I mean, uh, for people who like both, I, I mean, I think there's certainly be a lot to to find in common. I mean, since now I am editing both, um, I mean that's that. I guess that's the big news for to anyone who may uh, just be tuning in and hadn't uh, heard that news. Um, you know, uh, Fantasy Magazine, which has been around since 2005 and uh, had been at least until um, recently edited by Cat Rambo and Sean Wallace, um, uh, is now going to be edited by me. Um, and uh, you know, so Cat is. Uh, Kat is stepping down to focus on her writing, uh, which is actually good news for everybody who likes uh, reading science fiction and fantasy because she's a great writer. And uh, um, I actually published her twice in Lightspeed. So, I mean, that's good news to me, too, in, in another way. Not only does it open up the doors for me to edit Fantasy Magazine, but now it gives me a chance to publish more of her stories because she'll have more time to write. Um, but, uh, yeah, so, um, but yeah, I mean, certainly, certainly I think there are sister publications and, uh, you know, we're relaunching, um, well, by the, when this airs, the site will have just relaunched, um, a couple days earlier on Monday. And, um, you know, uh, that'll reinforce the whole sister publication aspect because, uh, the new, the new fantasy site will look almost exactly like the Lightspeed site, you know, with some slight modifications, obviously. But, uh, you know, it's, it's very much going to be like, you know, oh, well, clearly these two things go together. Um, so it, it's what you're saying there, it it starts on Monday, is that right? It all kicks off for you on Monday, so that's that's the green light is Monday for for fantasy. Right, right, right. Oh well, hey, we'll have to keep it. And will it be? You know, will it be, will we be able to listen? Is is it the same as Lightspeed in the in the basics? You know, you can you can there'll be an RSS feed and you can follow it like that as well as as a podcast. Right, yeah. So, I mean, um, yeah, the, the, the new fantasy publication model is going to be basically just like Lightspeeds in that, um, you know, every week we're going to release a story, um, a story on the website along with a piece of nonfiction, and then we do our author spotlights and, 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 um, and, and artist spotlights. And, um, you know, every month, uh, two of the stories that we publish will be podcast. Uh, and, you know, they're produced by Stefan, Stefan Rudnicki, who's, uh, uh, an Audi and Grammy award winning, um, you know, audiobook producer and narrator. Um, and, uh, so, you know, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can subscribe to our RSS feed and read this, the, the content on the website. And also, um, every month at the beginning of the month, you can um, you can buy the the whole month's worth of the magazine um, in an ebook edition. Um, you know that you can download onto your Kindle or whatever, or just read it on your computer. But um, you know, if you want to read it right now, you want to read it at the beginning of the month. You can just you know pay three dollars and you get the ebook edition. And uh, um, otherwise, you can just wait and you can read it when it appears on the website. Has has this plan always been in the making, John? Do you know, to to bring fantasy like Lightspeed, or is this you know you're kind of seeing the the good reactions of Lightspeed, and you're thinking you know maybe we can you know do the, exactly the same, but on the fantasy side. 
Um, I, I'm not sure. You'd have to ask uh, Sean Wallace, the publisher, about that to be sure. But I mean, I think he probably, um, uh, you know, he was trying something different when we when we launched Lightspeed. Um, and uh, you know, given that he's been publishing um, fantasy magazine for you know since 2005. Um, you know, if, if he saw something that worked better than what fantasy was doing, then I, I figured, you know, maybe that was in the back of his mind all along. I don't know that it really, um, that he really had any plans to, you know, put me in charge of it. It's just, uh, I think because the timing happened where, you know, Lightspeed had been doing really well, Kat decided that she was going to step down to focus on her writing. So, um, it just sort of all meshed together and came together really well. So what are you looking for then in, in stories that will be on fantasy? Yeah, you know, that's a really hard question to answer, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, you can write up guidelines and post them on the website and send them and send out invitations to authors, but I mean, um yeah, it's it's just really hard to describe what you want. Um and and I mean, that's why magazines I guess always say that, you know, oh, well, read the magazine to see what I like, but um you know, I mean, I just I want to I want a broad range of fantasy fiction. Uh, I mean, you know, I want it to be, you know, uh, well written and uh, and, and 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 like sort of taking uh, taking a different take, or, or I want to see different takes on on familiar themes, and I want to see you know uh, fresh new ideas that I haven't come across before. I mean, you know, it's the same thing that every editor wants, really. But uh, um, yeah, I don't know. It's it's really hard to narrow it down more than that. What about your fact article side of it? Are you bringing the same people over who work? Because I can't remember the names who work on the light speed are you bringing them over into fantasy as well uh yeah so um yeah a lot of the team is uh working on both magazines now um you know andrea kale was our non-fiction editor for light speed and then um she stepped down because she had uh you know she had other uh business things going on that didn't leave her enough time but um our new non-fiction editor is uh, uh esther inglis arkel um, she's actually a, a writer for io9 and and you know she's done some other freelance writing and whatnot uh, but now she's the nonfiction editor for both sites um, and so she's overseeing all of that um, and we also have a managing editor Molly Tanzer who's uh you know she's managing editor for both sites and um, and then we brought on Pablo Defendini as art director and he's handling both and so you know we have we have several people who are working on both sites and then we have some assistants and whatnot or who are just you know just on Lightspeed or just on fantasy um, and then for the the nonfiction writers themselves uh, I mean that's still done it's still done on a kind of freelance basis and we use some of the same writers over and over because we like them um, but uh, a lot of the a lot of the articles are just sort of assigned to someone or uh, some particular writer because like oh well this person's a subject matter expert on this particular topic that we want um, them to write about and so we get them to do that um, you know and and it's uh, with fantasy it's going to be the same plan where like with Lightspeed we um, we have we buy the fiction first and then um, when we when we schedule it um, when we schedule it. Uh, we we look at the not, we look at the fiction pieces and then we assign an article based on something um, in the fiction. So like if there was a so like for instance in um, in, in an upcoming issue of fantasy we have a, a a story about unicorns and so we got um, Helen Pelinowski to write an article about um, you know sort of the the history of the unicorn uh, myth and uh, so you know we do that kind of thing. So it's sort of the same thing um, as we do with fan, uh, with Lightspeed. That's what I was. That's going to be next question. What can we see? Or what can we hear coming up in fantasy in the in the future? Okay. Uh, yeah. So let me just uh, take a look at my calendar here. I mean, uh, so the the first issue, um, the March issue here, uh, the our debut story is the Sandal Bride by Genevieve Valentine, which uh, you're going to be yes, airing here gonna, on the Starship Sofa. I'm going to play that next. Right. And um, 
So uh, to go along with her story, we have uh, Graham McMillan, who's also an io9 writer. He he has an article called uh, Three Real Historical Figures Who Embarked Upon the Hero's Journey." You know, which uh, you know the hero's journey, the you know the idea of a John Doug- or, or John uh, Camp or Joseph Campbell uh, put forth in his uh, you know mythology books and whatnot. Um, and uh, so uh, then we have a reprint by Holly Black called "The Dog King." Um, we have an original story by Tanith Lee called "The God Orcrum." And then uh, our last story for March is uh, The Lonely Songs of Larendora by George R. R. Martin, which is another reprint. Um, and let me see. Uh, for uh, In April, we have uh, new stories by uh, a new writer uh, named Cat Howard. Uh, and then we have another original by Jonathan L. Howard, who's uh, uh, the author of the Johannes Cabal, the Necromancer books. Um, no relation to those two. They're both Howards, but not related. Um, and then we have a reprint by Carrie Vaughn and uh, Peter S. Beagle. So that's the, that's our first two months in, in fantasy coming up. Right. Hey, it's, it's all looking nice for you. Hey, John, it's all looking good. <laughs> Thanks. So is there is there any other new? Have you got any? You seem to be the kind of the, the busiest man in. Kind of, you know what I mean? You're always... It, there's sometimes it's kind of, it gets too busy for you, or do you still just love this kind of this little industry that we're in? Oh yeah, you know I still love it. I mean, I, I get I get pretty busy now and then, and and when when the deadlines pile up on me, but uh, you know I I manage to keep it uh, keep it going here. Um, you know, recently, uh, you know, until recently, I'd been a publicist for Nightshade Books, and I recently stepped down for that, and I guess partially because I uh, you know I had been getting a little too busy with all these other things, but because um, uh, you know. Editing has always been my primary interest, and so you know I uh, stepped down to sort of focus on that more. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I've always got a lot going on. I also do the the Geeks Guide to the Galaxy podcast over on IO9, um, and uh, you know that's always fun to do. And um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've got several things in the hopper, and uh, some of which I can't talk about yet. But um, so is it? I mean, like I said, I know you're kind of busy as anything, but have you got any more anthologies we can look forward to? Uh, yeah, actually, I mean, recently I sold an anthology called Armored uh, to Bayon Books. Uh, it's uh, you know, it's it's an anthology of all stories about um, you know powered armor and uh, and mechs and that kind of thing. Um, and so I'm look, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, you know, actually, Io9 did a, a little profile on that because they were all excited because uh, uh, they're like, finally, an anthology entirely about power armor, and uh, it actually got a lot of uh, a lot of attention. So I was really pleased that the reaction was so positive. Um, I mean, I, it's personally, it's a it's a theme that I've always really been interested in. Um, I don't know if you ever read this book called Armor by John Stakely, um, which is a sort of a cult classic in science fiction. I mean, it's like he, he's not a big name author or anything, but I mean, the book's been in print for for like ever, and like it's like in every bookstore, um, every science fiction section, and I guess consistently sells. But um, you know, I came across it when I was fairly young, and it made a big impression on me. And so, um, in in a lot of ways, this anthology, Armored, is is the one I've, I've you know sort of been waiting my whole career to do. Um, and you know, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, that's uh, you know, that's in progress right now, um, and uh, should be out probably in 2012. Well, we'll definitely get you on as well, sir, when that comes out. Have a little chat about that. That would be lovely. John, honestly, listen, good luck with the, the Nebula. As you know, fingers crossed you're doing the right stuff there. And good luck with Fantasy Magazine. All right. Yeah, thanks a lot. You look after yourself. Thanks, you too. There you go. So next up, we're going to play The Sandal Bride by Genevieve Valentine. 
It is narrated by Paul Beamer. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Sandal Bride by Genevieve Valentine Pilgrims always cried when they crested the hill and saw the spires of Maruna. They usually fell to their knees right in the middle of traffic. All I saw was the gate that led to the night market. We pulled barrels off the cart. Salt, cinnamon, chilies, cardamom, and maize flour, safe in the center, away from wandering hands. And when the moon rose and the women came, it was as if we'd always been waiting. They moved in pairs, holding back their veils, closing their eyes as the smell of maize flour struck them. Goes well in baking, Mark told a woman, which you know all about with those fine things in your basket. The whole night went well. Mark could sell spice to a stone, until I got peppered by a loose lid and staggered back, choking. From behind me, a woman asked, Where are you going? Who's asking? I snapped, and looked up into the ugliest face I've ever seen. Teeth like old cheese, small black eyes, a thin mouth swallowed up by jowls. A passenger, she said. Where are you going? South, I said vaguely. Never liked people knowing my business. Then brushed Pepper off my shirt and yelled, Mark, so help me, I'll sell your hide to the fur traders. The woman was still standing there, smiling, her hands folded in front of her politely. Did you need some salt? I asked. No, she said. Well, I wish you a good journey, I said. And then for some reason I'll never know, I asked, Where do you travel? South, she said, and I realized exactly where she thought she was headed. I've never known when to seal the barrel and shake on the deal. It's how I ended up with a blue wagon and a partner like Mark in the first place. Not on any transport of mine, I said. It's for my husband, she said, a shoemaker in Okalide. I'll join him there. I didn't wonder why he'd left her behind. A face like that was bad for business. Mark came around and stood behind me. I can't take an unescorted woman, I said. I didn't care, but someone on the road would. This was a church state. Find someone else to take you. As I turned to go, she opened her hand and unfurled a necklace of sapphires as long as a man's arm, flaming as they caught the dawn. Mark gasped. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I reached without thinking and had to pull back my hand when I remembered myself. I knew the trouble a woman would bring on that road full of pilgrims and devout traders. I don't accept bribes, I said. Mark kicked my foot. It isn't a bribe, she said. It's a dowry. Mark stopped kicking. You want me to... 
I paused. She held out her hand draped in glittering blue, her eyes steady. Sandal brides are common enough on this road. Not this common, Mark muttered. And I surprised us both when I cut him off with pack the wagon. Still muttering, he went. And then it was just the woman and me. Sandal briding is dangerous, I said. Women go missing that way if the men get greedy. She smiled. A greedy man wouldn't have pulled back his hand. I found myself smiling, too. And by the time she said, my husband has another when I am safely delivered. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Somehow I had already decided to agree. We went the back way. I didn't want her to see Mark's face until it was too late to object. The ceremony was easier than border crossing. I gave her a pair of sandals I'd bought on the way, and she showed the priest the necklace she was giving me in lieu of bed rights. I swore to release her at the end of the journey. He wrote my name down next to hers, marked us Ocalide, and it was over. Outside, I said, You could go pack your things. I don't have any things, she said, and stopped to buy a blanket. Mark was still packing when we got back, but he must have known what I was going to do because he had made space in the back of the wagon for someone to sit. I drove the oxen, which were fonder of me than of Mark. Good salesmanship never fools oxen. Mark kept watch in the back of the wagon when he was awake. All morning I expected him to climb through and demand a seat away from the woman— my wife. But when we stopped in the scrub at midday 
and I let the oxen loose to find what they could in the stringy undergrowth. I saw him helping her down. We'll rest half an hour, I said. Mark nodded and disappeared back into the wagon. Just kick him out of the way when we set off, I said, unhooking my canteen. She laughed and took a seat under the branches of the twisted pim. It was scant shade, but the flats were like this all the way to Okalide. There was a reason her husband made a living there. This ground wore out your shoes. She shaded her eyes with one hand and peered out at the horizon, though there was nothing inspiring about it. It was three months of low scrub and low hopes. Expect more of the same, I said, taking a drink from my canteen and trying to sound like a grizzled traveler and not like someone who used to live above an alehouse and still hated desert nights. I don't mind, she said. I've never been outside the walls before. I'm excited for anything. I was probably more grizzled than I thought, though since the idea of being closed in by city walls made my skin crawl. Well, if you like scrub, we'll have plenty. How do the animals take it? I looked over at the two bony oxen, who had found enough roots for a meal and were chewing contentedly. They're tough beasts, though they look dead. Tough beasts do surprise you that way she said. She went back into the wagon, and only then I realized she had gone all day without so much as a drink of water, and I had offered her none. We'll arrange a bed for you in the wagon, I said, the first night as she and Mark were trying a fire. Oh, no, she said. I love the sky. I wondered if she expected me to sleep at her side. I didn't know what sandal husbands usually did. The wagon is really much better. More privacy. Too late, she said. I already know what Mark says in his sleep. She handed him the flint, and Mark blushed and bowed his head to the sparks. After the fire was going, Mark helped me pull rations out of the barrel. I hope she doesn't eat much, he said, staring at the salted beef and stale bread. What do you say in your sleep? Mark shook his head, and I hated that they should have been together in the back of the wagon with their secrets while I was sweating in the sun all day. Don't lose your manners, I said into the barrel. Mark raised an eyebrow, sliced the meat into three pieces with his pocket knife. Well, what's her name, then, so I don't have to keep calling her good wife? You should call her good wife. Don't you know her name? She hadn't said it, and I'd never asked. But the priest had written it down. Sarah. Mark looked at me like I was one of the oxen, and took the skillet out to her. Tell me about your city, she said to me. It was like your city, like any city. I don't know my city, she said. Start there. And I must have made a face again because she explained. 
They have the market at night, so we don't see the city well enough to run away. I thought about the women picking their way home before it was light, about her thin purse, her refusal to go home and pack, the food turned to dust in my mouth. What do you want to know? I asked. But I knew the answer before she said everything. I told her about the alehouse. She asked how ale was made and listened as if she'd married a brewer. She wanted to know how many people could read. I told her about my schooling in the townhouse, owned by a noble who lived in the country, and then I realized how it sounded to live in the country when the country looked like this. So I explained lakes and green trees and the soft, wet snow that fell in winter. I described the trader who sold me his wagon, his beasts, and Mark's indenture in exchange for the alehouse. I expected her to tell me it was a poor trade, but she listened to this story, the same as to the others. When I got to the terms of the sale, Mark said, This was worth an alehouse in a seasoned city? I had no answer. Gave him none. After I ran out of my life, I told her the tale of the pearl, which seemed to make her sad. So I told the tale of the blind flower seller, to smooth things over. Then my throat hurt, and I said, We should sleep. You know, I grew up too, Mark said, as he sulked back to the wagon. She laughed. Her voice was dry, and I handed her the canteen. She laid her blanket on the hard ground and pulled half of it over her. I felt guilty for not having bought a pallet, a felted shawl even, in all the time I'd been sleeping on the ground. The wagon was as it had been delivered to me, as though I was just keeping it for the man who might want it back. We'll buy you a pallet, I said. No need she said, like someone who's used to the worst bed. Do you know the stars? No. She was quiet after that. When enough time had gone by, I made a bed a little behind her. It was cold that far from the fire, and it felt too familiar to be so close. But I wanted to be something between her and the night. I wasn't fond of other traders on the road, or ever. But a few evenings later, I saw a fire and knocked on the side of the wagon to let them know we were stopping. I brought a rasher of bacon to trade for a torch to light our fire. They were glass traders from Demarest, and after the pleasantries I found myself saying, Let me bring my wife over. She has a little pepper to season it. Mark and the sandal bride, Sarah, I thought, were pulling bread out of the barrel when I hauled myself into the cramped quarters. Bring some pepper, I told her. I wasn't sure how to go on, but she guessed and smiled and reached for the right barrel. Mark said, That's five coin worth. Come on, I said, and she carried the ladle like it was maize flour and not some common thing.
they were surprised to see her. And I remembered. She was ugly. She didn't notice or didn't react, and they made room for us. And when there had been quiet for a moment, she said, Where have you come from? They looked to me like she had spoken out of turn. I thought about the city walls and the night market closing around her again in Ocalide. I said, Do you know the stars? A week later, we found someone who knew the stars, and he went through each constellation, jabbing his finger at the sky. We found a botanist after that, wasted out in the scrub, who described flowers I'd never seen. A silk trader liked her. He opened up his caravan of wagons and had his servants bring the best. We held up our lanterns and looked at the embroidered fountains that spit silver spangles along the blue silk. Pilgrim women never spoke. The men only spoke to me. We stopped trying. Pilgrims could season their own food. Once, when I stopped the wagon for the night, I found her sleeping with her cheek pressed against a barrel of cinnamon, like she could hear how it smelled. I rarely said anything at strange camps. What was there to say when you were always the ignorant one? But I listened, and I saw how people changed as they spoke of things they loved. And with every story I felt the world opening before us, as if my oxen walked on the sea. A metal worker and his wife sharpened our knives for some chilies, and the sandal bride's eyes gleamed in the dark as he explained how to power the wheel, how to shape a blade. Where did you learn it? At my father's feet, the man said, and tears sprang into his eyes. But even as he cried, he told her about the illness that had carried off his parents. He wanted a home by the sea, where the salt air dulled enough knives to feed a metal worker for the rest of his life, and where the fish was fresh. That night, she cried, softly, mourning the parents of some man she'd never see again. I counted the stars, the great ox, the three cubs, the parted lovers, the willow tree. The wagon got lighter as we went. Mark winced every time I opened a barrel, and though I kept the ladles skimpy, I couldn't blame him. We would never make it to a port city before we ran out. I closed my hand around the sapphires in my pocket as I drove. The day was coming when I'd have to break the clasp and sell them off. Twice we stopped in tent cities and set up in their open squares, and Mark and Sarah and I handed out envelopes of maize flour and filled people's burlap bags with what was left of the cumin and salt. By then, the nights were cold in earnest. Mark made beds amidst the barrels, little fortresses to keep out the wind. Sarah and I kept separate blankets, but I slept between her 
and the wagon flap. I would listen to the wind hissing past the canvas and think, this much, at least, I can do for her. One night it was birders, and I scraped the last of a barrel of cinnamon to make enough for an offering. I don't know what you're hoping for, Mark said, but you're ruining yourself this way. I didn't answer. There was nothing to argue. When we reached camp, I said, This is my wife, Sarah, and took her arm to present her, and she looked at me for a long moment before she smiled at them. She told my stories, always. People were kinder if they thought she wasn't from Miruna. We met the girl with the shriveled leg who made cages, the boy who made paints that turned a thrush into a sweet Anna. Above us, the little beasts hopped back and forth in the bentwood cages, and of everyone we met on that long journey, that family was the happiest. That night she sat and looked out past our circle of light to their camp, where the birds were calling. Silhouetted by the fire, she looked like a camel, a beast who had always been wise, and I watched her until the birds went silent. The last long stretch to Okalide was four nights of nothing, not even scrub for shelter, and in the pilgrim town we bought up vinegar wine, only thing that won't go brackish, and decided to travel at night and rest in the heat of the day. Mark drank whenever wine was offered, and he took it as badly as ever, so he was still asleep when the sun set, and it was time to go. Sarah and I sat in the shade of the wagon, and watched the night crawl over the dust. Will I ever hear your story? I asked. And she looked at me, as if she knew why I was asking. She did know. She knew. And Mark knew. And I was the only one who was just waking up to why. Her thin mouth pressed tighter, as if she was afraid of the words getting out. I have no story, she said. I was born hidden, and grew hidden, and I married hidden. And now I go to Okalide. And your husband? Is he kind? I hope, she said after a long time. There was a breeze moving in ahead of the moon. But if not, I'll be unhappy in Okalide, which is better than being unhappy in Maruna. I wanted to say, stay here and risk unhappiness with me. But here was a wagon and a raggedy trail around the desert cities. You met the same sort of people wherever you went, and one day she would regret asking someone his story and learning what he really was. She was only my sandal bride, and by the time the leather wore out she would be happy or unhappy with some other man, 
and I would still have a wagon and a wide circle of road. I said, You'll find a way to be happy. Because that was the only thing I really knew about her. And we sat in the shadow of the wagon until the breeze turned cold. She sat beside me, wrapped in her thin blanket, all that night as I drove towards Okalide. After we were stationed in the morning market, Sarah, my sandal bride, stepped out from the wagon without even her blanket and said, I'm ready. Mark came out behind her. When he was on the ground, he held out his hand and they shook like it was a business deal. My wishes for a good life, he started, but abruptly he turned his back and crawled into the wagon as if he had forgotten something important. I almost took her elbow, but when I held out my hand, she looked at me. Under her gaze, I dropped my arm, held it against my side. She looked around until she saw some landmark her husband must have given her. This way, she said, and I followed her out of the market. Okalide was under church rule, too, but here I saw women in daylight, at least, buying bread and reading the notices posted in the open squares. The crowd that had been a nuisance before was overwhelming now. I wanted to know about the old man carving spoons on his doorstep, about the three young girls running along the edges of the fountain in the square. Here, no one noticed Sarah, my wife. Her face was one of a thousand faces, not some apparition with a ladle of pepper in her hands, but somehow, walking beside her, I felt like the Empress Guard. At a corner, she looked at the words etched into the clay walls, then turned to me. Which one reads south? she asked quietly. And my heart broke. I pointed, and after she looked at the word to memorize it, we turned down the shady street. His was the sixteenth door, and when he answered her knock, he said, Sarah, as if she didn't know her own name. But she just smiled and embraced him. I looked back at the main road where a shaft of sun crawled across the dust, he introduced himself, but as he did, he wrapped his arm around her waist, and I didn't catch his name. How was your journey? he asked, and tripping over himself, and of course you'll come in and have some cold water and some fruit. I can't, I said. He has an apprentice, Sarah explained, and they have work. He nodded. Of course, of course, he said, and then he turned to her and smiled. And how was the journey? I held my breath and waited for the first story she would tell him, the first words that would make it one big story sewn with little ones as a wedding gift to him. She smiled and said, A lot of brackish wine. He laughed so hard he had to drop his head. And for a moment, she and I...
looked at each other. I saw the bars of her cage bending around her, saw why she had wanted those stories. She'd needed something that was hers to hoard against a life with some dull boy to whom she had given her word. When he had recovered from his laughter, he saw I was still there and blinked. You need your bride price, of course, so sorry for forgetting, he said, and a moment later, there was a little ruby bracelet in my palm. I was still looking at Sarah. I had forgotten I would be paid. The priest at the bastion wrote, Safely Delivered, and wrote down all our names, and it was over. She said, Come visit as soon as you can. We'll be back again, I said, which was the only lie I ever told her. When I got back to the market, the wagon was still packed, and Mark was waiting in the driver's seat. What did he look like? Let's go, I said. Took the reins. We were five miles outside the city when I said, What do you want to do after your indenture? Trade, he blurted, choked on a mouthful of dust. I got his story. He had a woman in Suff he'd promised to come back for. And he'd heard about the botanist from Sarah and wanted to find new spices. From the east, maybe, he said. If they can be had by ship. I gave him the ruby bracelet. Payment for the spice I used on the journey. Your indenture is over. The oxen would warm to him. He knew how to drive the wagon. I moved through and questioned anyone who would answer. I wanted to know everything about the world. With the first sapphire, I bought a book to write in. Some old man married a woman with six red-haired sisters. The youngest got black hair and set about cursing them all poorly, and he and I laughed into our beers until we cried. Three brothers pulled aside a riverbed to keep their village from flooding, and they bought wine and sang songs in three parts, and I marked the words as fast as I could. When the first book was full, I bought another, for the botanist and the birders and all the stars I knew. I listened to everyone, wrote down everything. You have to write down everything. The world is wide, and you never know what stories someone is waiting to hear. Maybe, someday, someone will have bought a pair of boots from the shoemaker and his ugly wife down a dusty street in Ocalide. Don't forget, copyright is Genevieve Valentine's. Now there's a little author spotlight just regarding that story and Genevieve Valentine herself. In this author spotlight, 
We asked author Genevieve Valentine to tell us a bit about the background of her story for Fantasy Magazine, The Sandal Bride. First, could you tell us what inspired The Sandal Bride? Uh, yes. When you travel, you see people sometimes in a train station, or if you're stuck on a tour, you're stuck with them for two weeks, but you see little glimpses of people, and you're probably never going to see them again. And some people get very curious about that kind of thing, and some people are totally oblivious, and I wanted to create a story that put those kinds of people together. In the story, the character with the most individual freedom is also the most limited in his wonderment of the world. Do you think his responsibilities constrain his curiosity? Or that people need to be introduced to new ways of looking at the world, and he's not yet been introduced to them? I think I think that's the kind of question that the story is actually asking, and there's not really one answer, because the way people deal with the world is so different, and every character in the story deals with the world in a different way, and it affects them differently. I think it's something that everybody who, who reads the story and everybody, period, uh, has to go through for themselves. At the end of The Sandal Bride, the protagonist travels the world writing down people's stories. Do you also, when you travel, keep a record of all that you see in here? You think I should? I have a memory like Swiss cheese. Um, unfortunately, what happens is I tend to keep a terrible diary when I am going anywhere, and then three months later, I end up reconstructing something that's half from memory and half imagined, uh, which is good for the writing, but bad when people ask where I've been. Sarah, the sandal bride herself, collected stories because she needed something that was hers, to hoard against a life with some dull boy to whom she had given her word. What stories do you return to time and again? Do you have favorites that you can always recommend? Absolutely. Um, there are some stories that I read when I was a kid, or at least much younger than I am now, and every time I come back to them, I find something new, or it reminds me of the way I was the first time I read it. Uh, Peter S. Beagle's The Last Unicorn is definitely one of those books. I think I own about six copies of it. Uh, Carl Sagan's Contact is another one. Um, and recently, I discovered a book called Travel Light by Naomi Mitchison, and it's put out by Small Beer Press. And there was something about it that had the feel of a childlike fairy tale, but went a lot deeper. And I have been buying up copies of that every time I can find them and passing them out to people. So that's definitely one that has stuck with me. Your own book, Mechanique, A Tale of the Circus Trisalti, comes out from Prime Books in April. Will you be giving any readings? Um, Mechanique is about a mechanical sort of steampunk circus traveling a post-apocalyptic landscape. They are enthralled to the ringmaster who made them and so they are stuck with the circus and when their sovereignty is threatened by an outside war then the circus has to either come together or fall apart which i know sounds like an action movie trailer but that's what happens um in terms of reading from it i am reading uh kgb march 16th i believe i will be reading a tie-in short story that will actually be coming out in fantasy magazine the month that the book comes out um, and I am attending some other conventions throughout the year, and hopefully readings will happen there, too, as much as my nerves will allow. Genevieve, thank you for your time. Before we conclude, tell us what's next for you. Uh, sure. I have some short stories coming out in anthologies, um, Teeth Vampire Tales, Beware the Night coming out from Prime, and The Mad Scientist's Guide to World Domination is some of them. And this fall, or maybe late this summer, uh, comes Geek Wisdom, out from Quirk Books, which is an extremely fun project that I co-wrote where you get to take the geekiest quotes that you have carried with you forever 
and try to make them relevant, but really you're just squealing about them for 200 pages, which was great. Thank you very much. There you go. Do pop over to Fantasy Magazine. Like I say, everything good in light speed is going to be passed over. That you know, John obviously can pick the stories there. So well done, John. Uh, excellent stuff. Next up is Starship Sova's Interrogations. Harry Turtledove, are you a science fiction writer? I'm afraid I am. Tell me about your childhood. Well, I uh, was one of those odd kids who was no good at sports and wanted to be a scientist, and I ended up going to the California Institute of Technology, where I flunked out. Ended up with a history degree at UCLA, and that's what's informed a lot of the stuff I've written. So it's worked out okay. How did you get started in science fiction genre? Well, I started reading it in about the third grade, and I started trying to write it when I was in high school, and kept at it until eventually, when I was in my 20s, I started to make money from it, and by the time I hit a little past 40, I was making enough money to quit my day job, so I did, and I've been telling lies for a living ever since. Which single science fiction writer most influenced your own style? Um, I would name two, actually, L. Sprague V. Camp and Paul Anderson. Which book by another author do you wish you'd written? Oh, that's easy. Less Darkness Fall by DeCamp. What would be the one question you would ask a science fiction writer? Well, yeah, I can't. Let, let, let me pause and think about that for a moment. <laughs> Probably a question about, you know, just what, one of the things that writers often do is just talk about the different ways that they actually end up writing and compare notes about that because there are no two people who do it the same way. For what reason do you write science fiction in preference to other classes of literature? Well, I think that science fiction can give you a look at the world through the kind of front house mirror that you can't get any other way. It asks questions that other literature just doesn't. What one aspect of science fiction writing is the most difficult? Telling the reader what he or she needs to know about the created world without either giving too much away or talking too much and boring the reader. Does it get any easier? No. Um, because, as DeCamp himself said, you know, the, the big ideas often come when you're younger and you know and you have you know and you, and you you don't always have the skill to do them but by by the time you've got the skill you've used up a lot of the big ideas describe your daily work in dear oh it varies quite a bit it depends on what i'm doing i mean i will i will spend the morning doing email and stuff and doing research and i will usually write in the afternoon and in the wee small hours and i, I sleep a lot in shifts you know, which which is one of the advantages of being a freelancer. I can indulge my odd sleeping habits. What's the strangest thing you've ever done while researching? Well, let's see. I have briefly piloted one of the Goodyear blimps in Los Angeles. Uh, I was doing research for a world with 1930s technology, 
and one of the blimps is based quite close to where I used to live. I called them up, and I tried to talk my way aboard, and they said, no, we're going to have our engines overhauled, and we're going to go up to Vancouver, and maybe in six months, but probably not then. And I talked with the fellow in charge of it for a while, and it went from... No, I'm sorry, not maybe in six months, but probably not then, too. Can you come down Sunday? And so I did. Do you think science fiction as a genre is different from other genres? Uh, Science fiction has to do well all the other things that other genres do, and it has to build a world unfamiliar to the reader, too, which makes it harder, I think. What do you consider the chief value of science fiction? Asking interesting questions and coming up with interesting answers for them. Has science fiction ever disappointed you? Everything disappoints you, especially as you get older. Is there still new ground to be covered in science fiction literature? Always. Harry Turtledove, thank you very much. Thank you. There you go. So finally, we have How to Run a Con Part 3 by Michael Swanick. Hello, this is Daga. And I'm Surplus. And we're here to teach you How How to to Run run a Con. con. Today, we're going to talk about one of the greatest conmen of all time, Victor Lustig. Better known as the man who sold the Eiffel Tower. Lustig was born in the Czech Republic in 1890. He learned his trade as a confidence artist and was soon wanted in every nation in Europe. He went to America, of course, the land of opportunity where he called himself Count Lustig, knowing how dazzled Americans are by titles. The key to Victor Lustig's success was his unparalleled inventiveness. He saw opportunity where angels feared to tread. For example, he once conned Al Capone himself. That's true. Lustig went to the famously short-tempered gangster and told him he had a swindle involving a crooked bank where Capone could double a $50,000 investment in two months. Capone gave him the money along with some very graphic warnings about what would happen if Lustig tried to cheat him. Then Lustig went straight to a bank and put the money in a safety deposit box. That was the brilliance of the man. When the time came to stand and deliver, Lustig went back to Al Capone and told him that the bank deal had fallen through. He waited while Capone did a slow burn. Then, apologetically, he handed back the $50,000, every penny of it. Capone was so impressed with Lustig's honesty that he gave him $1,000 on the spot. Which was Lustig's plan from the beginning. He was a fine judge of character. And it was this same understanding of human psychology that enabled him to sell the Eiffel Tower. Lustig was visiting Paris when he read a newspaper article about the difficulties the French government was having maintaining the cultural icon of the French nation. So expensive were the required repairs that reactionary voices were calling to have the tower torn down. Ha, Philistines. Immediately, Lustig gave himself an impressive government title, had letterhead printed up, and invited leading scrap dealers to a hush-hush meeting at a luxurious hotel suite. At the meeting, he explained that the government was going to tear down the Eiffel Tower and was accepting bids for the salvage rights. He also strongly emphasized the need for extreme secrecy, for otherwise the French people would surely rise up against the scheme. Who could blame them? 
At this point, there was room for the scrap dealers to wonder about the validity of the scheme, but Lustig's understanding of human psychology was perfect. Yes. He went privately to each of the dealers and, pretending to be corrupt, solicited bribes to have their bids viewed with favor. That successfully demolished any lingering doubts they may have had, for only a legitimate government representative could possibly be so venal. <laughs> the winner, a poor soul with the unfortunate name of Poisson, or Fish... Poisson is also French slang for sucker. <laughs> ...was taken for $100,000, which was serious money in those days. Even more incredibly, Poisson was so embarrassed by the incident that he never went to the police. Which allowed Lustig to come back six months later and run the same scam on another set of scrap dealers, making him the only man ever to sell the Eiffel Tower twice. That's all for today. This is Surplus. And I'm Daga, teaching you how, how to, to run, run a con. con. <laughs> Not that there's anything remarkable about selling the Eiffel Tower. I've done it myself. With my help, I should point out. My dear fellow, I couldn't have done it without you. <laughs> And there you go. Don't forget Michael Swanick along with Gregory Frost, Jim Patrick Kelly, Sheila Williams and Mercurio Rivera will be running the Writers Workshop 5pm UK time on Saturday. If you want to come over to that Writers Workshop, please feel free. So that is show number 179. I do hope you have enjoyed it. Please, if you want to send us an email, that would be fantastic. Starshipsover at gmail.com. Until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a ventilation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.